who knew Bill Evans could make good children's music? planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. Many workers in the United States are in the midst of what is being called the Great Resignation. That is, they figured out during lockdown that their jobs sucked and they wanted more out of life than low wages, few benefits, instability, and being treated poorly by their bosses, who were making far more money than they ever would. Once in lockdown and realizing that they could have done their job from home all along, they wondered... Why all the commuting and time away from home, family, and loved ones was necessary in the first place? After a few months of working at home, many realized their work was not rewarding. As our guest today writes, people simply want to spend that time getting the dignity and respect denied to them for so long. Once workers came to the conclusion that dignity and respect was missing from their place of employment, Many engage in what is being called the Great Resignation, quitting their jobs and pursuing a livelihood that makes them happier and feel better not only about themselves, but about their future. It's not that there is a labor shortage, it's that there is a surplus of really, really bad jobs where workers are paid little with few benefits while being treated horribly in the workplace. It's as if there's been a great awakening like the religious revival of the mid-18th century, except instead of religion, there's been a revival in the belief that work should be, I don't know, somehow respectful instead of punishing. In fact, this kind of great resignation has happened in the past, and the outcome of it was, well, revolutionary, changing our relationship with work to something completely different from what it was. We'll learn what's really happening with what the media insists is a labor shortage when we have the return of David Dion, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Great Escape, Why Workers Are Quitting Their Jobs After the Trauma of the Pandemic. David is the executive director of the American Prospect. David is the author of the 2020 book, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power, as well as 2016's Chain of Title, how three ordinary Americans uncovered Wall Street's great foreclosure fraud, which earned the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize. David was also this year's winner of the Hillman Prize for Excellence in Magnes, Magazine Journalism. Magnes Journalism, totally different. This is David's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on the show back in September 2018 to discuss his then-just-published In These Times article, Below the Surface of Ice, the corporations profiting from immigrant detention, you can find that interview at thisishell.com when you search on Dayen, D-A-Y-E-N. Follow David on Twitter at D-D-A-Y-E-N. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host. It's Wednesday and producing our final live show of 2021 is Alex Jerry. Alex, because the planet is on fire and the temperature tonight is supposed to be in the upper 60s, which is 
frightening as hell. I will be going, no, actually hanging out at the bar downstairs tonight, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Specifically, I will be hanging out in the beer garden with Carrie's feral bar cat, Mel, and enjoying the fresh, relatively virus-free air. Yesterday, you also said you will be at the bar tonight, but you hadn't yet to dis- decide what food you would be bringing over. Have you made your decision? People are waiting. Uh, people can keep waiting because I can't come to the bar. My kid's sick. Uh, I've been waking up at 4.30 in the morning for the last three days. Oh, sweet. Uh, we are entering shining territory. Oh, sweet. <laughs> so I'll uh, be spending time with my family. What a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, any time next week you're going to be around or have yeah, no idea yeah, at this probably. point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably next weekend. So 2021 really sucked. It was actually worse than 2020. And had you told me at the end of 2020 the following year would actually be worse, sadly, I would have believed you. Since the first version or first person died from the virus in the United States on February 29th, 2020, on a leap day, in a leap year, a year we all wish we could have leaped right over, I was certain we were going to be in for the long haul. When Dr. Anthony Fauci announced in March 2020 that it would take at least 12 months to create a vaccine to combat the virus, I figured... We'd be in this thing until, well, 12 months later, March 2021, still practicing all of the recommended safety protocols. Remember changing your clothes before going outside or coming back inside, disinfecting and quarantining your groceries, and all those discarded latex gloves that were seemingly covering the sidewalks? Those were the days. And when Dr. Fauci updated that timeline to 12 to 18 months for a vaccine to be proven effective and distributed widely, I did the math and realized... We'd likely be doing all of that until September of this year. But just before September rolled around in August, we got the virulent and deadly Delta variant, which is still claiming a thousand lives a day on its own. So despite having ditched the clothes changing, grocery disinfecting and quarantining in the latex gloves, I still kept my six foot distance and remained wearing my mask. That is whenever I deemed it necessary, as by the time I by that time I was fully vaccinated. Boosted in November as the vaccine was reportedly losing its efficacy, I finally felt safe to travel and visit family who were also fully vaccinated and boosted in their homes for extended periods of time. I even spent this year's National Day of Mourning, a.k.a. Thanksgiving, in one of the hottest hotspots in the U.S., feeling relatively safe, no matter how misguided that decision was. Of course, my girlfriend, who would be my common-law wife if we lived in one of those ridiculous states that has things like the idea of common-law marriage, my girlfriend and I are, are not throwing our annual holiday party at our home because we still do not feel comfortable with 60 people in a 1,400-square-foot apartment. But here's to 2022, not sucking as bad as 2020 or 2020 Part 2, But more important than this year actually being worse than last, and I hope that life somehow gets better next year. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what was your highest low point of 2021? What was your highest low of 2021? We haven't got a lot of responses to this, but we've got fantastic responses to this. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, face covering, the actual face mask that will protect you definitely from any virus, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to complete Listener supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to those of you who have recently supported This Is Hell and picked up some This Is Hell holiday gifts. After all, 
What says the holidays more than giving a gift that boldly states, this is hell? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's Wednesday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff picks egg over chicken. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with David on the great resignation. Again, the question from hell is what was your highest low point of 2021? We're looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell in 2021. If you're interested in running the board as Richard and Alex do and as Sebastian will begin to do in January, email me at chuck at thisishell.com if you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell. We're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, with shows beginning weekdays at 10 a.m. Of course, we're very flexible, and if you can only do it you know, a couple times a month, we can work within your schedule. You do not need any previous experience running the board, and it takes very little time to train board ops. This is your opportunity to not only learn how to run a mixing board, but also have access to a professional studio for your own projects. Don't forget, this job also comes with a living wage. So if you're interested, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. What better way to start the new year, start 2022 with a new gig? If you are interested in working on the show or have a guest or topic suggestion or just have some thoughts on the show that you want to share with us, email us. We also have been asking listeners what their favorite interviews or episodes of This Is Hell in 2021 were. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be playing these interviews of best of 2021 at thisishell.com, which means throughout the holidays, you can still have a little hell in your life. Remember, as always, if we do play your suggested interview or episode, we will thank you personally on air. And we got an email overnight from Teresita with her favorite interviews of 2021 on This Is Hell. Teresita writes, hey, hey, This Is Hell. My favorite shows of 2021 were firstly, Kevin Waits' West of Slavery. This communicates my new Mexican heritage as a Jenny Zara. It's a relief to hear my people's story. Jenny Zara or Jenny Zaro are indigenous who were enslaved by other indigenous tribes. Teresita also nominates, let's see, healthcare labor as discussed with Gabriel Winant. I have read his book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America a few times just to filter it as some sort of reality. A Politics of a New Green Deal with Max Isle, I also appreciated as well as what we do with modern monetary theory with James K. Galbraith, crisis diagonalism with William Callison and Quinn Slobodian, which Teresita apparently loved as she gives it six exclamation points. And because it warped my mind into thinking experience in uh, medium design, Keller Esterling, wishing the best for your lungs, Chuck. Teresita. Thank you, Teresita. My bronchitis seems to be clearing up. I know this may be surprising to everyone, but it appears that when fighting bronchitis, you should stop drinking and smoking. Who knew? Also, Teresita and everyone who will be tuning in in the next couple of weeks at thisishell.com to hear the best of 2021, the interviews with Kevin Waite on indigenous slavery and James K. Galbraith on MMT have already been nominated a few times, so look for both of those to be replayed during the holidays. We are still taking suggestions for our best of 2021 show, so if you have a favorite interview or episode, email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. 
coming up, the real reasons behind what the establishment media is calling a labor shortage. We will also tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash this is hell and have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, again, what was your highest low point of 2021? Oh, and remember how at the top of yesterday's show, I mentioned how there was blood splattered on the front stoop of my building. Well, after speaking with an expert, an expert, I have some more information about said blood, and I'll be sharing that with you following our guest live from the nightmare of want. This is hell. It took a pandemic for workers in the U.S. to realize how much they hated their jobs, the low pay, the lack of benefits and the instability of their employment. Workers finally got a chance to sit back, do their work from home, instead of having to haul themselves to some far-off workplace, and they came to the conclusion that their work is simply not worth all the time, energy, and often abuse they were experiencing just to make a buck. Some are calling this the great resignation as workers find better, more fulfilling livelihoods. But today's guest, has a different name for it returning to This Is Hell. David Dayan, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Great Escape, Why Workers Are Quitting Their Jobs After the Trauma of the Pandemic. Welcome back to This Is Hell, David. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on again. It's great to have you back on the show. Uh, You can follow David on Twitter at DDAY. E-N. You write that in September, 4.43 million workers followed uh, a person you're talking about in your article, Carolyn Potts, lead and quit their job, a new record high that represents 3% of the American workforce leaving their jobs after 2.9% quit in August in lower wage sectors like leisure and hospitality and food services and accommodation. The numbers were as high as 6.6%, around one in every 15 workers. So the story in the mainstream establishment media is that employers cannot find workers. What is missed when the main story is not the record number of workers quitting their jobs to find better work? Yeah, I mean, I think the missing story is is the workers themselves. Uh, so one of the things I was very cognizant of going into the reporting on this is that the majority of pieces that we've heard about this labor shortage have come from either analysts that are looking at aggregate statistics or employers who are saying, hey, I can't find this guy or that guy to do this job or that job. Nobody was talking to the workers and and saying, well, why are you quitting? Why are you seeking a a better deal? Why are you uh, looking for other employment or, or going back to school or starting your own business? Why are you doing this right now? And uh, if you ask them, a very clear pattern emerges. The, the disproportionately, this so-called labor shortage is happening at the, at the low end of the scale, the low wage end. And those jobs are terrible in the United States. And they've gotten worse, much worse during the pandemic. And the pandemic created this reckoning for low-wage workers to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to risk my life, uh, my my, my mental uh, capabilities, uh, my my mental health, uh, in order to uh, make a, a menial amount of money doing a menial task. I want more fulfillment. I want more dignity. I want more respect. And I'm going to go get it. And and that has been 
I think one of the more enduring changes that we've seen come out of the pandemic. We, we thought at one point this is going to lead to legislative change, that we're going to recreate a, a, a real safety net at some point, or that there would be other just shifts within society, uh, maybe the work from home revolution or, or, or other things. But I think this reckoning is actually the biggest change that we're seeing come out of the pandemic. So what does it reveal to you? What does it say to you about more establishment mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, ABC, CBS, NBC, even PBS? What does it say to you about those kinds of media outlets when they are not asking workers why they're leaving their jobs? Because I think that's a perspective that is definitely lost when it comes to what is happening with this so-called labor shortage. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I want to totally cast aspersions on the rest of my media colleagues. Oh, go ahead. Go uh, ahead. I, I just I just think that that there's another story to be told here. And and for whatever reason, it's it's not being told. And uh, and it's a very clear story that uh, you see over the course of decades. I mean, low wage work in America really does not reflect low wage work in other countries. About one quarter of U.S. workers are in what are considered low-wage jobs. That is the largest of any developed country in the world. Uh, if you go to a McDonald's in Denmark, they're they're paid eighteen dollars an hour, or the equivalent of of that. Uh, if you go uh, in, in into other countries, there is not only better pay, but better conditions, uh, more of a say for workers on the job. Uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, that's just different in the United States. We, we uh, you know, low wage work is just not, it's not really livable in, in the US. And it, it was much worse uh, after the pandemic uh, because now not only were you, were you sort of demeaned and humiliated and, and pushed to do more and working under erratic schedules, but you were also now taking your your own life and safety into your hands. And you point out that over financialization has added to the pain. More than 11.7 million U.S. workers, most of them low wage, now work for companies owned by private equity firms uh, with a business model of extracting as much cash out of portfolio businesses as possible. Private equity has turned even more jobs into low wage nightmares. So how are workers in what you call peer countries protected from this kind of exploitation by financialization and private equity firms while that's not happening here in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's just a larger percentage in in the U.S. We are starting to see more private equity takeovers in the U.K., but uh, by and large, uh, this is is a U.S. phenomenon. And uh, a perfect example is uh, the woman who I start the story with, which is Caroline Potts, who works for, or previously worked before she quit, worked for PetSmart, uh, which is a private equity owned chain of uh, pet stores. She was a dog groomer and uh, the conditions of her work got to a point such that she told me when I would drive into work, I would hope that I would get into a car accident because then I wouldn't have to go in. 
And this isn't like a, a, a foundry or a, 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 a site from the 19th century, like a meat cutting plant or something like that. This is a pet groomer, right? This, this, is, this is not the stuff of, that, that you would expect to be nightmarish, but the pace of that job uh, for her at PetSmart, the demand for turning over uh, uh, grooming uh, uh, of these pets, uh, qu as quick as possible, the indifference towards dogs and, and uh, that were extremely stressed out uh, or, or had behavioral problems. Uh, it was causing a situation where this woman who was a real dog lover, a pet lover, was being forced during her job to inflict pain on animals. And she couldn't take it. And uh, this is what a, a sort of bottom line squeeze labor, private equity owned model does to the average person. And uh, in this moment of collective trauma, uh, where we've all been dealing with a, a good deal of stress, I think that uh, there has been a sense among the public, uh, particularly among people who were in these low wage kind of dead end jobs, that you know work is one of the largest time blocks of the day. I spend as much time at work as I do uh, really doing anything else. And I, I, that, that time block cannot be this horrific. But you also point out that when it comes to PetSmart, company policy was supposed to prohibit grooming dogs with seizure disorders or those that couldn't handle the stressful environment. Many of the work conditions that Caroline was experiencing were supposedly not allowed by company policy. But you point out where she was working in Murfreesboro, uh, Caroline was continually pushed to groom them anyway. And then she tells you some pets can die in the kennel from stress. One dog was terrified of the dryer and they wanted me to dry her straight through. They said figure it out. So to you, what explains uh, how, how does private equity affect that company policy and then it changing by the time it gets down to individual stores? Well, private equity is a business model that uh, buys up these companies based on a lot of debt and then loads the debt onto that company so that the company, in addition to having to pay its workers and pay for goods and supplies and, and all of the sort of overhead of a normal business, they also have to service this massive amount of debt every month. They have to pay back all these creditors. And so something has to give, and usually what does give, uh, in order for them to be going forward business, is they, they cut labor costs to the bone, they cut uh, uh, costs on you know workplace safety and stuff like that, and in this case they were trying to maximize revenue, right? By taking all comers, any kind of uh, dog that needed to be groomed, and uh, the, the 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 fears and 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 the of the workers and and the nightmare sort of of the workplace was was made secondary, and so. Uh, this was a revenue maximization strategy. It was a bottom line at all costs strategy. And that is very typical of what we see out of uh, these companies that are owned by investment firms. And we saw this happen here in Chicago with the Dominic's grocery store chain. And as soon as they got bought up by private equity, pretty much everybody knew that Dominic's was going to go out of business. You give the example of Ed Gadomsky, who worked at Waterbury Hospital in Connecticut in the IT department for 32 years before the private equity firm 
uh, Leonard Green and Partners, an L.A.-based private equity firm, took over. Gadomsky tells you, in the first year, layoffs became a household word. Longevity employees were particularly targeted. But don't these layoffs undermine the ability for the business to be effective at what they do when it comes to providing quality service for customers? Why would an investor want to invest in a company that was just bought by a private equity firm. Why is an investor, what, what, if I was an investor, would I not be able to see the writing on the wall and get out before the company, as they often do, collapse? Well, sure, but that's not the point uh, when you're talking about private equity. So you're not, a, you know, the, the whole point of private is they're not publicly traded companies, right? So what a private equity firm uh, wants to do is extract as much value out of that company for themselves as possible. It doesn't really matter to them whether the company becomes a going concern after they've sucked as much life out of it as possible. Uh, they, they are completely concerned with taking management fees, taking any kind of fees uh, that they, they, they can. And uh, uh, what happens to the company doesn't matter at that point because they've already made their money back and then some. So uh, that's kind of the model. And uh, it, it's a model that really is specifically uh, uh, interested in rewarding these investors at the expense of workers. So it's not very surprising that when I started talking to people about why they quit their jobs, uh, people who worked at private equity firms came back over and over again because those jobs are some of the worst in our economy and they uh the pandemic uh, certainly even worse than that so are essential workers any more or perceived as any more or less disposable since the pandemic began i mean i think that's a really interesting question uh i i think that we created this myth of the essential worker kind of we created this idea that uh, workers on the front lines who had to go to their jobs during the pandemic risk themselves in some way were heroic in some uh, in some fashion and uh, p- workers started to take that to heart right they started to believe that that yeah we we are essential and that means that we can withhold our labor because we are needed to make this economy run and that's what we're going to do we're going to seek out better opportunities for ourselves because we're essential to the functioning of the US economy uh, it's interesting to me, uh, you know one of the things I put in the piece is that the last two really large scale, years in the 20th century for labor uh, were 1919 and 1946. You saw more strikes in those years than any other in the 20th century. That was right after World War I and right after World War II. When uh, workers came back uh, you know, from overseas, they were in infantry and they were hailed as heroes for preserving democracy. And then they were put into jobs that were decidedly less than heroic. And they decided they didn't like that and they were gonna fight to uh, make those jobs better for themselves. And while this wasn't a war, I think there are similarities between the experience of workers at this time and the experience of workers immediately after those two uh, conflicts. Uh, they, 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 similarly, workers were sort of lauded for their bravery and their, their, their heroic nature and they decided that they wanted more 
out of uh, this this large time block that they that that they spend uh, for their during their days, and I, I I think that 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 similarity is consistent. And then when I started looking at it, uh, there was a consistency going back centuries after pandemics specifically that showed that worker power and 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 sort of collective action was a feature of post-pandemic environments. Especially following the Black Death, and we'll get to that in a moment. But not only, I was just thinking of this while you were talking, or you were ta- answering the question, uh, not only are we seeing this as a result of a pandemic, we did just end wars that you know, certainly didn't have the same number of people as World War One or World War Two had. So I'm wondering if that might be a contribution. But 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 can are there any signs that this can lead to rejuvenated union movement as it did following both world wars, or or are you right. know federal and state union laws now far too tilted against labor organizing compared to the early 1920s and later 1940s? Well, that's the real key and the real million dollar question here. Uh, you're you're not going to see, although we have seen more labor resistance, right? We've seen striketober and 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 a lot more strikes than we've seen in previous years. But the, the, the workforce is, what, 7 8% unionized uh, in the United States. So these trends around, particularly around low-wage work, you're not going to see unless you're, you're looking at the non-union workforce. What we have seen are a lot of non-union walkouts. Uh, I talked to a, a group at a, a Jack in the Box in Sacramento who's walked out twice and won better conditions for themselves. Uh, you're seeing this, uh, you know, kind of all over the economy. Uh, there is a, a feature kind of of collective action because of social media, uh, whether it's the anti-work subreddit or uh, the, the quit my job hashtag on, on TikTok. Uh, you're, you're seeing people gain courage from watching other people quit. I talked to this woman who became sort of a uh, somewhat famous for quitting her job at a Walmart and posting the video of her quitting live over the PA system on TikTok, got millions of views. Um, so there is this sort of element of collective uh, consciousness and collective action to it. But uh, ultimately, what I do say in the piece is that unless this translates into real labor organizing, then ultimately everything that we're seeing right now is going to be ephemeral. Now, what did we see last week? We saw workers at one uh, Starbucks store uh, agree, vote to bring in a union. Looks like a second one uh, there could have uh, been voted at the same time in Buffalo. Uh, there's a little, uh, uh, it's not quite clear how that second vote is gonna turn out. There are other Starbucks workplaces that are looking into this. There's a Dollar General in Connecticut that attempted to unionize. Uh, So I think the next evolution of this is seeing those workers who are kind of making this individual decision to quit their jobs. Uh, If it evolves into a situation where workers collectively at a workplace get together and say, you know what, we we need to uh, uh, use, you know, pull our voices and pull our voices together and uh, try to, uh, you know, create some sort of union membership, then I think uh, you will see those changes endure. 
uh, to a greater degree. But why didn't, for instance, your example in Sacramento with the Jack in the Box or the situation in Buffalo with Starbucks, why didn't Jack in the Box or Starbucks just cut workers' hours, bring in new employees, or just fire them all and start off with a new set of employees, as Kellogg's has with their workers, and that had a unionized workplace? Well, they're attempting to do so at Kellogg. Uh, it, it's unclear whether that's uh, going to be successful. In fact, there was a very amusing uh, uh, initiative that some uh, folks on those similar channels that I talked about, the social media channels, to spam Kellogg with fake resumes so that they can't actually find workers because they have to sift through all these bogus applications. Um, so we'll see what happens there. As far as the jack in the box, I mean, you know, that that is where this comes into play with the tight labor market. When you have a tight labor market, uh, it's more difficult to find workers and uh, therefore workers gain a measure of power over their employers. And that was certainly the case in, in the Sacramento jack in the box where uh, the, the, the shift workers all walked out. And uh, the, the managers had to sort of work the jack-in-the-box, and it took all of two days of them working the jack-in-the-box before they came back to uh, the workers at that store and said, you know, we'll, we'll fix the conditions, we'll pay you overtime, we'll, we'll raise your pay, we'll, we'll get this done. And uh, they're actually part of a coalition in California that is trying uh, to improve conditions uh, using the legislative uh, angle of, of uh, mandating certain uh, 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 certain types of conditions at at fast food restaurants within California, we saw uh, also in in New York where uh, the, the the wage board said fast food workers need to make fifteen dollars an hour, for example. Um, so there are legislative ways to to deal with this. There are uh, obviously collective bargaining ways to deal with this. Um, but a tight labor market, those economic conditions obviously give workers an advantage to say, you know what, I'm going to quit. I'm going to find another job pretty easily. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go where I can have the most fulfillment, the better conditions. Uh, the other thing we're seeing that should be mentioned is a lot of workers moving to start their own businesses. We have actually seen a real uh, a real explosion of business formation since the pandemic, which is different than what happened during the last recession when uh, uh, business formation really cratered. Uh, what we're seeing now is millions of people make that attempt. Uh, part of this is because after the pandemic, there was this uh, increase. We sort of made a pop-up safety net uh, so that people through stimulus checks and enhanced unemployment and other features uh, were able to accumulate some savings. And that gave them the courage to go back out and, and you know, take a risk economically by starting their own business. Now, a lot of businesses fail, and we're going to have to see over the next couple of years how that pans out. But, uh, you know, it, it shows this, this better way that you could you could see for your for for the economy where uh, you give people enough uh, ability to uh, uh, take entrepreneurial risks. You quote Michael Duff, a former Teamster who now teaches at St. Louis University School of Law, saying the pandemic activated this latent insecurity that was growing as a result of the gig, gig economy in which no one is an employee. If work is so bad, I'll do anything to not do it. 
what do you have to lose, your crappy, dangerous gig job? How does the precarious gig economy lead to enhanced worker power? Because the fear has been it would do and has done the exact opposite. Well, it has. Uh, I, I don't think Michael is, is, is saying anything otherwise, but I think what he's saying is that there's a breaking point and the pandemic uh, helped create the conditions for that breaking point. It created this situation where the, the, the work that was on offer was just so bad that even if you weren't moving to start your own business or find another job or, or whatever, you were thinking, all right, well, uh, if, I, if I give up this job, I'm giving up very, very low pay, uh, a, a personal risk to myself, uh, terrible conditions, being yelled at by superiors. Uh, what have I got to lose? And uh, so I, I think that is, is part of the psychology of this because it's very much, you know, people who, who look at this and analyze it, they're looking at statistical analysis, they're looking at the conditions of the labor force and, and, and things of that nature. But I think you have to look at this psychologically as well. And I actually talked to a couple psychologists for this piece that uh, the, the, the circumstances of the pandemic and the trauma it created really did have this impact where it made people rethink the way that they were living their lives and, and, and try to come up with schemes where they could live it in the way that they best wanted to see. And uh, sometimes that involved uh, you know, going into the business for themselves. Sometimes it just involved not working uh, and, and figuring out another way to survive that didn't involve uh, this particular type of job. And some of it uh, was sort of taking advantage of the opportunity of a tight labor market to find a better job for themselves. And this is, by the way, we're seeing this in the statistics that uh, uh, in, uh, in, even inflation aside, uh, real wages at the low end of the scale are rising because you know there's been this sort of collective revolt, almost a general strike of sorts among the low wage workforce to say, we're not gonna do this for the same amount of money in the same kind of conditions uh, anymore. And uh, I, I think that's really fascinating. You mentioned where the great resignation meets the digital age. Walkout signs posted outside businesses routinely go viral, feeding a near insatiable anger with low wage work. As you mentioned before, hashtag quit my job videos have been trending on social media sites for more than a year. On any given day, a nurse, an office drone, a footlocker clerk or a preschool teacher can be seen taking the jump. Though the act of quitting is often individual, social media collectivizes it, creating community from an atomized and dislocated workforce in a splendid dialectic. The same digital technology that facilitates speed up and second-by-second monitoring by the boss facilitates acts of collective consciousness, organizing, and rebellion. But doesn't that control through digitization far outweigh any sense or sense of uh, collectivization when it comes to worker solidarity? How much can digitization undermine any attempts at solidarity? Oh, plenty. I mean, I, it, that's certainly true. And that's certainly been the, the trend over uh, the fat past several years. I mean, there are now ways in which your, your employer can see whether or not you're doing keystrokes or clicks on your at-home computer to, to see if you're, you're being productive. 
Um, uh, the, the fact that you have a uh, certain workforces that work from home uh, creates a situation where they, there isn't a water cooler, there isn't a way to really get with your, your, your fellow workers and, and talk about you know, opportunities to, to make change. Uh, however, those same tools can uh, bring people together from across many different workforces and, uh, and, and engage in this dialogue with one another uh, in, in ways that we're seeing right now. And uh, I, I think that's, that's something that maybe was unanticipated by employers, but uh, it's, it's, it's certainly become fairly powerful. And uh, the, the, the other thing about it is that while certainly this digitization can atomize a workforce, uh, the workforces that I'm looking at in this piece, the low wage end of the scale, a lot of these are customer facing retail uh, restaurant in-person workforces who are not necessarily in that same position of being uh, now a lot of them are monitored and surveilled. If you're talking about Amazon or, or things like that, where, where your, your every, every move of your body is tracked and, and, and your rate of, of, of movement to, you know, fulfill orders or something like that is, uh, is, is surveyed and, and written down and, and you can be, you can be thrown out of your job because you, you did six packing in an hour instead of seven or whatever. Uh, that's very, very true. Um, however, uh, I think that what we're seeing right now with respect to social media has sort of, as I've said, collectivized a very individual decision. And as, uh, as you were saying earlier, you mentioned the time of the Black Death, which in its most highly affected areas wiped out half the population between 1347 and 1351. The extreme labor shortage gave serfs and peasants who worked the land for the wealthy power they had never seen before in their lives. The ability to bargain for cash wages, lower rent, less hazardous conditions. They could find opportunities at artisanal craft guilds in the cities or just at the neighboring Lord's Village. They could use the market for labor to pick and choose their circumstances for the first time. And you quote an expert who says that the thing you see so often today is why won't these people work for $14, $15 an hour? You see the same thing from chroniclers of the these abbeys, the major employers of the day. They aren't working for what they worked for two years ago. It's a moralized statement that they're lazy, uppity, have forgotten their place in the natural order. Now, this sounds exactly, and I'm sorry for bringing up the media again, this sounds exactly like the coverage on Fox News that I saw this week. Does mm-hmm. Fox News interests reflect the interests of lords and feudal times? And if so, why do so many people who define themselves as working class support a network that represents the best interests of exploitative employers? How is that attractive to the working class and their audience? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, one one answer to that is that they heighten cultural issues that that sort of discount some of this uh, this labor stuff. Uh, but, uh, I really think that the, the similarities between, uh, what we saw after the black death and what we're seeing now, uh, are, are really, really interesting. I was, I was, I was happy that I was able to talk to some folks who were able to contextualize that for me better. Uh, one of the things we saw is the backlash from the employers of that time 
which has many similarities to the employers of this time, like, you know, many of the people I assume you see on Fox News. Um, the first real major labor law in England what came right out of the Black Death. It was called the Ordinance of Laborers. Uh, and it uh, did a lot of things to sort of restore this this hypothetical moral order, uh, uh, the, the social order of things. It uh, blocked workers from moving around in order to get a, a better deal for themselves. It put in wage controls. Uh, it also put in price controls, which is kind of interesting. Uh, everyone under the age of 60 was required to work. Uh, if, if you weren't pledged to someone to work and, and you, you could be plucked out by some, by, by a, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, a Lord of some sort and said, I can compel your service for a year, uh, at, at this particular prevailing wage. Uh, uh and, and it even blocked, uh, beggars from using funerals to uh, gain alms, which was a major way in which poor people uh, uh, sustained themselves at the time. And so you had this this labor structure, this 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 legislative structure that that said you are not allowed to use this time when there was a literal labor shortage. There literally weren't enough people to work the fields. You're not allowed to use that to your own benefit. And what's so interesting about that is that it didn't work, that employers still paid more, even though they were prohibited from doing so in order to secure the best workers. Uh, they still, even though uh, higher wages were forbidden, they were still setting them at that level. There were thousands of cases uh, with local justices of the peace that, that, that showed uh, that, that, Serfs and peasants just didn't want to follow this, these particular rules. And you're seeing almost the same thing now that, that employers are, are griping and, and, say, and, and trying to get uh, their state legislatures to pass new laws. Uh, they, they cut off unemployment benefits, enhanced unemployment benefits, the pandemic era stuff. They cut those off early in 25 states. And that was explicitly to bring people back to the workforce. Uh, by the way, employment in states that didn't cut off those those unemployment benefits early uh, rose at the same exact rate as as in these other states. So it had no effect whatsoever. Uh, but it's not working. People are still quitting their jobs. They're 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 not being forced back sort of at the barrel of a gun to uh, these low wage situations. And uh, it it shows the the role of the psyche in this, that, that, that you can, you can set up all the laws you want, but uh, you know, it, it's hard to force somebody to do something they don't want to do. You point out how today bidding wars for people transitioning to a new job, to new jobs are routine. When minimum wages at a number of retail establishments are rising and the average wage at restaurants and grocery stores just hit $15 an hour, Starbucks has raised average pay to $17 an hour, flight attendants working holiday shifts at American Airlines are earning as much as triple pay, wage growth overall in the key low-wage leisure and hospitality sectors at 12.4% year over year, well above even the elevated rate of inflation. To you, what explains then why the federal minimum wage hasn't been made into law yet when so many minimum wage jobs in the private sector are now paying far more than minimum wage? 
Yeah, I mean, this is something where the private sector and and the changes that they've made to their wage structures have driven these benefits for low-wage workers far more than any kind of uh, edict has. Now, there are many states where the the minimum wage, uh, cities and states, that where, where it's become $15 an hour or more, uh, starting up in Seattle and then California and New York and, and uh, uh, cities across the country. And every time the minimum wage is put uh, and minimum wage increase is put on the ballot, uh, voters approve it in, in, in record numbers. I mean, so uh, uh, we've seen the minimums rise over and over again within the states. Now, there are a few holdouts that are still stuck at the federal level of $7.25 an hour. And uh, obviously, uh, employers hold a lot of sway over those legislatures and, and uh, we're, we're and, and at the federal level. And, and we just haven't seen that that move forward. Uh, but when Amazon says we're going to pay $15 an hour at warehouses, uh, that gives sort of an escape valve to anybody who's making less than that to say, okay, I could always go over there and, and make more when, when, and that forces other employers to raise their minimums like target and best, uh, uh, Costco and, and, and Walmart and what have you. And you create this virtuous circle and the act of quitting, plays into that, right? Uh, if, if, if it creates this situation where there's something approaching a labor shortage, then uh, employers simply have to offer more to attract workers to get in and, 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 and take care of that. So uh, uh, that, that is creating this, this increase by itself, even without a federal mandate. Uh, now that that might be sound like sort of a conservative idea, right? That that the the free market will take care of it. Uh, what we know is that when these circumstances change, that uh, if there is no floor set, then there is nothing stopping uh, employers from from driving those wages way back down. And so that's why you need uh, uh, some sort of floor to create a living wage condition, so that nobody who works. 40 hours a week uh, for a living is, 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 is still living in poverty. You're right. People do still have money in the bank from the various COVID relief programs, including three stimulus checks and expanded unemployment insurance, combined with the forced savings of a lot of places not being open for months. It totals extra savings of roughly $2.4 trillion, giving people time to make career decisions. But as the New York Times keeps telling us, all of that buying power is now being undermined by inflation, which has led the Biden administration to announce they, there will not be any more federal aid. How much does inflation threaten savings that have allowed workers to survive? Because I think in that inflation story, we're missing a big part of the fact that real wages are rising. Yeah, real wages are rising at the low end of the scale and they're rising at the high end of the scale. And in the middle class, real wages are actually falling. And, and if you look at it sort of on an aggregate basis, real wages are, are down a little bit in the last few months. And that is creating a lot of the discontent that you're seeing out there. Uh, the, the inflation story is complex. Uh, it has a lot to do with the supply chain issues, which is in some ways kind of another worker story. Uh, in other ways, it's a corporate power story. Uh, we've been doing a lot of reporting on that. And actually, our next print issue, this was the, 
the uh, uh, cover of our previous print issue, our next print issue is going to be entirely about that supply chain and, and its, its relationship to inflation. But it is a threat to, to workers who uh, may be making more, but then are having to pay more for necessities, which are a large portion of their, their, their overall spending. Um, so it, it, it is something that uh, uh, certainly alarms uh, policymakers, politicians, and uh, what, they, what they always talk about is this sort of wage price spiral where wages go up and then prices go up to compensate for the wages going up. And, uh, and, and then you, you know, where does it end, right? Um, I, I, that's not what we're seeing in the economy. The, 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 the price increases are very much largely due to uh, uh, supply chain issues. And we know this because uh, the price increases are happening well above any kind of input cost level. What we see over and over from companies is they're announcing their record earnings that are, uh, you know, for the largest companies, as much as 50% above their earnings levels in 2019. Uh, and I'm talking about net margins. So in other words, they're, they're not passing costs onto customers. They are passing well above those costs onto customers, which means they are not in any way uh, uh, in a situation where the, the wages that they're having to pay because of the great resignation or because of whatever uh, are outstripping uh, their, their ability to make a profit. They're making much larger profits than they were before. A lot of the inflation story is a story around corporate profiteering, using the inflation as an excuse uh, to, to then increase prices even more. Uh, and we're seeing this across the economy, and that's a function of concentrated corporate power where people do not have a choice other than to go uh, for these necessities to you know, a handful of companies that are all ri- raising their prices around the, the, the same rate. Concentrated corporate power is definitely not what's being discussed within that discussion of inflation. Uh, but how much is this inflation then, in your opinion, verging on price gouging? It is verging on that. And, uh, you know, we see that in a lot of key areas. One uh, being, uh, for example, in grocery prices, much of the increases is really in uh, proteins and meats and, 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 and dairy and things like that. And what we know from looking at uh, various other statistics is that the prices that uh, meat processing companies and, and meat processing companies are uh, 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 extremely concentrated. About four companies control anywhere between 60 and 80 percent of all meat processing, depending on uh, d- depending on the meat. Uh, we see that these companies are paying very low prices for cattle and hogs and chickens but they're charging very high prices at the grocery store. So they are sitting in the middle of this and using their information advantage to gain record excess profits. And uh, so that's a perfect example of what we're talking about here. And uh, the Biden administration has talked about that. Um, What they're going to do about it kind of remains to be seen. There are certain price fixing uh, allegations and uh, actual there have been convictions in in the meat processing field, Um, uh, whether they will take it beyond 
meet uh, and, and, and go into other areas remains to be seen. But I think there's a lot of reason that, uh, that they should. Uh, and, and at the very least, uh, talk about this in a way that un- gets people to understand what the real forces around inflation are. And you point out that we're also seeing a thinner labor force from an aging society and severe Trump era restrictions on immigration. Over two million more workers retired during the pandemic than would have been expected. All of this tips the balance in favor of those remaining in the labor market. So, David, is there a labor shortage out of choice by workers or is there a labor shortage because of an aging population and fewer migrant workers? Because the way the labor shortage is depicted it's all a matter of choice by privileged workers. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a mix, right? Uh, we'd known about these demographic issues for a long time. I mean, we knew that we had an aging workforce. Uh, and the, the fact that we had this huge crackdown on immigration over the past few years only worsened that. It, it, it did not allow us to replenish that workforce with foreign workers. So uh, we knew that there was a reckoning here in terms of uh, 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 a shrunken uh, uh, workforce, but that all of that is kind of at the margins. Uh, none of that is, is at the level of millions of workers quitting their jobs every month. That is, I think, the, biggest, the bigger driver here. Um, and uh, a lot of those workers are quitting for better opportunities, right? And, and, and a lot of them are, are quitting to start their own businesses. And a lot of them are quitting to do other things, whether it's college or caregiving or, or, or whatever. And so there, this is a multifaceted issue as, as you know, it's in, in a workforce that's 154 million people. I don't think there's any one story that can explain uh, you know, the, 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 the intricacies of that. But what I would say is that when, when you do look at this uh, closely, you do see that workers, uh, particularly at the low wage end of the scale, are uh, coming to an understanding with themselves that they don't want to participate in uh, an uh, economy that humiliates them and exploits them. And the, the only way for, for that to be fixed is for employers to give them a better bargain. You were mentioning this before about how people are starting their own businesses. You write, this has been a pronounced trend paralleling the great resignation. Business formation uh, through three quarters of 2021 is on trend to set an all-time high with over 1.4 million applications to start new businesses filled through September. This is a complete transformation of the anemic business formation out of the Great Recession in 2008. But a disproportionate number of new businesses applications are in the retail, food, accommodation, and hospitality sectors hit so hard by the pandemic pandemic and so freighted with low wage workers. So is this entrepreneurialism grounded in the same low wage exploitation as the entrepreneurs are trying to escape themselves? Well, I think it's in some ways started by those low wage workers. And I, I, I think that the challenge that they're going to face is uh, as their business expands, how are they going to find uh help in a way that honors the fact that their circumstances came from breaking free of uh, a low-wage work cycle that demeaned them. Um, uh, You know, when we were talking about these jobs in terms of uh, retail or food or things like that, this is talking about 
people selling things on the internet, for example, or uh, going to farmers markets and, and doing sales there. Um, so uh, uh, at, at, at the outset, that doesn't necessarily require uh, a large workforce, but as those businesses expand, should they be fortunate enough to expand, you are going to need, you need help. And uh, that, that moment is, is whether we see uh, uh, whether the, the sort of honorable way in which uh, workers are sort of opting out of this deal that has been made for them uh, around low-wage work, whether they uh, go back to that and, and use the very same tactics or whether they turn it around and say, you know what, I'm not going to put other people in the position I was put in. Just two more questions for you, David. You write, sure. what's notable is that rank-and-file union members are the ones unilaterally shutting down workplaces and even rejecting contracts negotiated by their own leadership. There's a level of distrust and disappointment in the status quo among workers that extends even to their elected representatives and unions. And so I was hoping that this might lead to greater labor organizing, more unions. But can this lead to unions that are not as accommodating to bosses as they have historically been over the last 30 to 40 years. Are workers radicalizing, if you will, the labor movement that the unions uh, and the unions that represent them? It's a big question. We've been doing a lot of reporting on that. Our Harold Meyerson, who's a labor expert, has, has written a lot about this. Uh, there, there are a lot of examples here to draw from. John Deere, uh, the workers there rejected three contracts that their leadership agreed to before finding one that paid more. Um, uh, same at Kellogg's, where they, uh, they, they rejected uh, the last uh, offer from management, which the, the leadership of the union said, this is something we might want to take. Um, the Teamsters just threw out the establishment uh, leadership and put in a reform slate. Uh, there, there are a lot of examples here of, of union rank and file sort of having this, this kind of discontent reflecting the sort of rag, radicalization of workers uh, at the non-union level. Uh, I, I think there's a similar dynamic going on there. And uh, 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 where that goes is going to be really, really interesting as we move forward. We have been speaking with David Dyan, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Great Escape, Why Workers Are Quitting Their Jobs After the Trauma of the Pandemic. You can follow David on Twitter at D-D-A-Y-E-N. David was on our show back in 2018, and you can find that interview by searching on his last name at our website, thisishell.com. And as we do with all of our guests, David, you may or may not remember, we end with the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate <laughs> to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, people are valuing fitting work around their life, not the other way around. What happens to neoliberalism when worker thinking shifts from my life must fit around work to my work must fit around my life? Or will it have any impact at all? It's a dangerous question for, for neoliberal thinking, right? Because uh, it their, their thinking is entirely based on markets and having sort of this reserve army of the unemployed uh, that, that is able to fit in uh, whenever they need a task done. Uh, uh, is this going to change anything? I mean, that's, that's kind of the huge question, right? I mean, we could, we could have a recession start shortly and workers are, are put in that same disadvantageous position and all of the gains uh, that came from this are lost 
as uh, the new businesses falter and workers need to find uh, uh, something to do in order to sustain themselves. So uh, this isn't a 100% story one way or the other, uh, but I do think that there's a mindset that has changed. There is a, a, a belief system that has changed. And that's, that's more difficult than uh, just, just, you know, there are, there are certain economic circumstances that create conditions that, that put people in positions where they, they have to uh, do things that, that are distasteful to them. Right. Uh, but when, when the mindset is, is, is simply different, when people don't want to put up with it anymore, uh, that's a harder thing uh, for employers to have to deal with. And I think they are going to have to deal with it uh, in the coming years. David, I really appreciate you being back on the show. We are going to annoy you in the future to have you on more uh, in, quicker than just three years and three months later. So I really appreciate you being on the show. This is a fascinating article, and people should check out your work at The American Prospect. Thank you so much for being on the show, and happy holidays. All right. Thank you. And happy holidays, Steve. Thank you. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. Alex, will you please remind our listening audience, what is this question, this week's question from hell? And has, are there any new responses? Oh, yeah, we got a bunch. This question from hell is, what was your high, highest low point of 2021? What was your highest low point of 2021? I thought for sure I was going to get those mixed up as well. Uh, It probably evens out. Uh, Alex B says, getting heroes pay for two months, technically a 10% increase in my wage. And having it taken away without notice, then only to have our union contract negotiate a 2% increase in wages a year for three years. I miss labor militancy. (laughs) Neil C. says, found an old photo of myself and actually saw a glimmer of optimism. Then I accidentally shredded it. Did he accidentally shred that? If I saw a picture of me with optimism in my eyes, I think I would just light it on fire. Uh, Jeffy D, who actually just joined the Zoom meeting, uh, one sec, uh, not appreciating enough the flavor of the capon my friend made for Thanksgiving. I can't tell him that or he won't invite me to the next capon feast. It's peak cognitive dissonance. Isn't a capon just a male chicken? It's a small one, I believe. Okay, like a Cornish hen, but not the same thing? I get, Maybe they are the same. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Dive into Wikipedia on there. Uh, and uh, hypocrite reader, friend's hypocrite reader, uh, walnut sender's hypocrite reader, Answers, being the first person to smoke weed in the Marianas Trench. <laughs> Ugh, jeez. Good Lord, hypocrite. It's a terrible one. We'll get a bunch of Twitter ones, too, so I'll uh, get to that one after Jeffy. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. And if you do become a Patreon member, you get a discount on all of our merchandise with a secret code word that you can only discover when you subscribe to Patreon. On Patreon Friday, a couple days from now, I will be revealing something that I have never mentioned on any of our shows ever, and that is my personal relationship with our guests or lack thereof. That is the extent to which I know the people who we interview on every show and why my relationship with them is the way it is. Sure, I appear to be friendly with the people who appear on the show. I was just now with David. But how well do I actually know our guests and why is the relationship I have with them 
the way it is, which I will be revealing to you on Friday. It's all an explanation of exactly how and why I conduct interviews with our selected guests, as we are often asked, how do you choose who to interview on This Is Hell? We'll also be sharing a classic interview that is currently unavailable anywhere online. And that interview is, well, I'm not too sure as we are currently checking the sound quality of a few conversations from the aughts, many of which were recorded in a number of mediums that no longer exist. And we may have already played them on Patreon, but I'm not too sure. So it's either going to be our June 2006 uh, conversation with Mike Davis on his book, Planet of Slums, but I think we may have already played that. I'm not too sure. Or it'll be a conversation from February 25, or 2005 with Dr. David Healy, director of the North Wales Department of Psychological Medicine, who was on to uh, argue that Prozac and other drugs likely lead to addictive uh, addiction and cause suicidal tendencies in some people. Or it may be a September 2009 talk with Danny Weil, who had written a three-part series on charter schools for a counterpunch and how they were getting bipartisan support from not only the uh, Bush administration, but also the following Obama administration. And this week only, we are sharing our bonus Patreon podcast tomorrow, Thursday, as well, because last week we spoke with Chelsea Bravas about her article at Real Life Magazine on the burgeoning billion-dollar-plus school security sector, which is turning schools into a police state, all because of an exaggerated fear of mass school shootings. During that conversation, I mentioned how we had a similar discussion back in 1999, one month after the shooting at Columbine. So tomorrow at patreon.com slash this is hell on our bonus Patreon podcast, we are playing our May 22nd, 1999 interview with Liz Palmer of what was then known as Brat Magazine. Liz had written about the exaggeration of fear surrounding mass school su- shootings and what that might mean for students in an increasingly policed education system. In other words, 22 years later, we're still reporting on the media exaggerating fears instead of covering reality. But if you want to hear any and all of that, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell live from hangover country. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Ode upon the egg. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Spoiler alert, the egg came first. First there was the egg. In the beginning of chickens, there was the egg. Who laid the egg? Asked the children. The proto-chicken laid the egg, children, answered the paleornithologist. And out of that egg came the first chicken. What's a paleornithologist? Asked the children. It's a scientist who studies prehistoric birds, answered the scientist who studies prehistoric birds. But weren't dinosaurs just birds? Asked the nerdy kid. Yes, thank you for reminding me that my field of study is superfluous, said the paleornithologist. Contrary to popular belief, a chicken does indeed produce eggs from its butt. A chicken butt is called a cloaca, and through the cloaca, chickens produce liquid and solid waste and eggs. So the next time someone asks you, What's up, chicken butt? You should answer, It depends on whether I'm peeing, pooping, or laying. That should show that poultry-obsessed version of goodwill hunting. How does he like them apples? The human embryo 
has a cloaca until between four and six weeks of gestation. So a human is a chicken for its first month or so of existence. Fry that on for size, anti-abortion finger lickers. But I did not come before you today to speak of the barnyard dinosaur known as the chicken, but rather that which preceded it, the egg. Yes, I realize we are only ten days out from Christmas, and eggs are normally associated with Easter. I should make you aware that I do not allow the Christian calendar to dictate what I write about. I am not a Christian. Let me make that clear. I do not believe in the divinity of Jesus. I don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. I do, however, believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, but I don't believe he was God. Though I do believe he rose from the dead and went down to Harrow Hell, then back up to join his father in heaven, but I believe in those things the way I believe in Frodo and Gandalf, or Shai Halud, or Moby Dick, or Gargantua and Pantagruel, or the sexually fluid aliens of Le Guin, and none of them will dictate what time of year I write on any particular subject either. So let us scramble to the egg. I recently held in my hand a blue egg. No, it was not a robin's egg. It was an Aracana chicken egg. It was beautiful. I cracked it into a small pot of miso and garlic chive soup I was making. But before cracking it, I observed it. I inspected it. It was not doing anything but looking light blue and perfectly egg-shaped. It was the light blue one might have seen in the Prince Valiant comic in the newspapers, back when there were newspapers, a strip of light blue defining the contour and metal sheen of a sword blade, or a square of light blue indicating an area of atmosphere seen through a window at night. The egg has been a symbol of creation for millennia. To European pagans, the egg represented life and renewal. The Easter people ran with that. Eggs are all over Easter. In the Rig Veda, the cosmos creates itself from an egg. Look at an egg. It is all perfect potential. Anything can come out of an egg. Snakes and salads, tortoises and trumpeter swans, axolotls and omelets, meringues and mayonnaise, pythons and peacocks, whippoorwills and whiskey sours. An egg can become anything it sets its mind to. With enough ambition, an egg can begin an entire cosmos anew. Makes me wonder, does it not make you, why an egg would ever settle for birthing a mere chicken? And yet, and non-meat-eaters all over the world, forgive my reminding you of this, the chicken is the closest to a universally devoured food bird of them all. They were groomed for this. Some roosters are castrated and become big, flavorful capons. Some are bred from white Cornish game hen stock and are miniature when fully grown. Chickens are the dinosaurs that feed the world. If you think about it, dinosaurs do a lot of the heavy lifting in our contemporary world. They, and mostly their vegetal surroundings, specimens of which the dinosaurs in question graciously declined to eat, sacrificed themselves to be the fossil fuels on which we've powered our misbegotten machines of destruction. They entertain us with their stop-motion, computer-generated, or rubber-suited antics. They gave us Godzilla and never once complained about a human performing in dinosaur face. Why? Because we have so subdued them. They dared not speak except to request crackers from our pirates. They fill what's left of our forests and meadows with song. But I come here today not to praise dinosaurs, nor sing the pedestrian nobility of their descendants, the chickens, 
but to exalt the virtuous egg. And allow me to put out of your minds the fate of any Humpty or Dumpty. We are not reliant on any king's horses or men to mend us and make us whole. They have failed us time and again. These bureaucrats of the failing state, which allows so many of us to go unhoused and unshod in the midst of economically cordoned off abundance. We are neither Humpty nor Dumpty. We are the ovoid solid that contains a million destinies, and none dast police us. Look at the egg. It is so oval and so smooth, sometimes flawed, but not often, and even when flawed, quite interestingly so. I know someone who habitually blows the yolk and albumen out pinholes she makes in eggs and decorates each hollow, delicate shell in ways that bespeak her creativity and cleverness and bring joy to all who look upon them. How readily does the shell of an egg accept human creativity? Quite readily indeed. Have you ever beheld the engraving and latticework done on the shells of ostrich eggs? Have you gawked in wonder at the Ukrainian designs upon the ova of Easter? Well, what's stopping you? Are you a mere chicken to be boiled for soup, or rather an egg, with myriad potentials? You're an egg, I tell you. You're a good egg. I don't say that over easily, nor am I yoking, nor is my intent to flatter by whisking your egos into a froth that will hold sturdy peaks. No, I simply want you, me, all of us, to go into this new year, which is of course, in truth, a meaningless measure of time, and certainly arbitrarily marked regarding its beginning and end, but nonetheless, let us all be good eggs this one time, and go into the year as if it were an egg itself, and as yet unborn cosmos of perfectly malleable dream stuff. Come on, let's do it. We have nothing to lose but our shells. I mean, what are you? Chicken. This has been an unseasonably foul moment of truth. Good day! Dude, how many puns, how many puns, <laughs> and so many were hard-boiled. It's just amazing. Hey. Now you, now you know what a capon is. Yes, I it do. is not a miniature Cornish hen little thing. It's a big ass. It's like a small turkey, and it's delicious. Oh, I don't know why cutting out its testicles or whatever those things are uh, makes it so juicy and big, but uh, that's what happens. And there are such things as heritage capons. So they're. Uh, oh my God! God forbid! I should. Oh my God! I would die if I had one of those. <laughs> that must be glorious. <laughs> it must be. So any plans for the holidays? <laughs> yes, I do. I'm going to be house sitting in Encino for a, a, a rambunctious young dog uh, in a house with an incredible hot tub and pool and. Uh, outdoor barbecue kitchen with several grills and burners and an indoor kitchen with several ovens and an incredible stove top and i'm just gonna basically eat hot tub and play with the dog so is this the home of somebody who produced a whole bunch of adam sandler movies no this is actually a person who uh really has uh, is mostly a, a, an editor, not a very good editor, but uh, <laughs> his money doesn't come from that, no. as far as I know. All right, let's leave it there then. Uh, happy holidays. Uh, I mean, what? I don't know. What are you going to do? Um, uh, same old, same old drive too far and celebrate the holidays far too many times, you know. 
Sounds horrible. <laughs> it's, it's got its upside and its downside, at least in one of the places that I'm going to be staying. The house is so big we get our own wing. Of course, it's not heated very well, but at least I get a little bit of privacy. So there's that to look forward to. And by the way, that will be in Ann Arbor, and uh, this will not surprise you in any way. Ann Arbor is not like what it was when you were going to school there. No, that's what I hear. What's the difference that you see? There's only rich people downtown. Oh, jeez. There's no... Remember how you would be downtown and there would be a house rented out to a whole bunch of college students that, you know, are... It could be working class, maybe lower uh, middle class. Uh, You don't see that anymore at all. It's just rich people, and it's really bizarre. And that that means it's kind of the end of the uh, activism that used to be Ann Arbor used to be known for. That's kind of just all petered out. Oh, man, that sucks. Uh, I remember on Main and Ann Street was a lot of, like, way down at the end was a lot of uh, working class small houses. But, you know, that's... Maybe labor will bring us back. <laughs> all right. Let's all hope so. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath because then I would die. Jeffy, love yeah. you. Love you. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hal. Alex, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from Hal and tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding. This week's question from Hal is What was your highest low point of 2021 via Twitter? Old pal eat fart 69 says felt pretty low earlier this year while flying over central California. I could see the wildfire smoke coming up near from where I lived in Sequoia national park. Wow. Joel G says the realization that my state Tennessee is doing all it can to spread the COVID virus. Rock taster says <laughs> getting vaxxed and then getting COVID in that order. So Tennessean is tenna believing. And then finally historic dog walks says, <laughs> I found what I thought was a fungus attached to a high branch in a sugar maple tree. It resembled sliced hot dog. After a lot of inspection, I determined that it was just sliced hot dog. (laughs) That is a high low point. So the answers I liked the most to this week's question from hell. Let's see. Um... Again, the question from hell was, what was it? Uh, what, what was your highest low point of 2021? I did like Alex B's response, getting heroes pay for two months, technically a 10% increase in my wage, and having it taken away without notice, then only to have our union contract negotiate a 2% increase in wages a year in three years. I miss labor militancy, says Alex, and uh, I think that's kind of going to be our future with labor, unfortunately, unless things change. I'm hoping they do. Neil C. saying, found an old photo of myself, as Alex was reading this earlier, found an old photo of myself and actually saw a glimmer of optimism. Then I accidentally shredded it. Sam saying, realizing this is the last month of student loan relief and trying to enjoy it as such. Mark's response, I had a kidney stone and went to the emergency room. They kept me overnight, but released me the next day because they didn't have enough beds for all the COVID-19 patients. But I contracted one of those killer hospital bacterial infections that really did try to kill me for five days until the antibiotics worked. But I still had the kidney stone. So my boss said, go ahead and take Friday off also. So... That was fun. Dan K. saying my shoulder was really sore after my second COVID shot. Then I realized it was in my other shoulder. And Warren saying, realizing I was incredibly average. (laughs) That's kind of a high-low point. So that makes this week's winner. Jeez, I don't know. I like Neil and I like Sam. So I'm going to go with Neil saying, found an old photo of myself. 
and because uh, the Dorian Gray aspect of this. Uh, Neil C. saying, found an old photo of myself and actually saw a glimmer of optimism. Then I accidentally shredded it because I really am wondering how much that was an accident and how much it was subconsciously purposeful. So congratulations, Neil. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want uh, from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Then send us that, your choice, and your mailing address, and we'll get it in the mail post-haste. My answer to this week's question from Mel was, uh, again, which was, what was your highest low point of 2021? I really struggled over my answer to this week's question from Hell. Then suddenly last night, it hit me. It was incredibly obvious. I couldn't believe I had not thought of it before. My highest low point of 2021 was at the memorial service for my biggest brother, Matt, when I was deep, 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 deep grief and mourning for my loss, for the loss of everybody. And I realized how much he had meant to his community, how active he was in helping others, how dedicated he was to not only supporting the local small town paper, but his advocacy for disabled people like himself, his work with public transit to make certain any and everyone could get to where they wanted to go, whether they could drive or afford a car or not, and, and his work with the local tribe in buying land back from the community, land that included one of those evil so-called industrial schools for the indigenous, which were places of torture and death for many indigenous children. Hands down, the highest low point of 2021 for me. Thanks to everybody for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we have anybody scheduled to be on our first week of next year's shows? Nah, that's what I'm doing for the next two days, getting the first week booked. Sweet. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is rice, specifically white rice. Thanks to this week's guests, including Martin Bilheimer, author of Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams, and Specters Over the Gilded Age. A lot of people like that interview. Thanks to yesterday's guest, Dr. Max Liboiron, who wrote the Nature article, Decolonizing Geoscience Requires More Than Equity and Inclusion. I really enjoyed that conversation. You can learn more about Max at their website, Max Liboiron, and you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Liboiron. That's L-I-B-O-I-R-O-N. And thanks to today's guest, David Ian, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Great Escape, Why Workers Are Quitting Their Jobs After the Trauma of the Pandemic. Follow David on Twitter at D-D-A-Y-E-N. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Also, thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And special thanks to Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be revealing a behind-the-scenes look at exactly what is my relationship with our guests. And we'll be sharing, as I just found out, the three interviews we suggested earlier, or I was mentioning earlier, They've all been played on Patreon, so you can still find all those interviews on Patreon. But what we will be sharing on Friday is our February 2014 interview with Mariana Mazzucato, who argues that governments are the agents investing in the long-term research and innovation that lead to corporate profits, including the pandemic, by the way, and the uh, vaccine, and defunding those programs essential defunds a future of innovative Americans. She calls in to talk about the early days of U.S. tech firms, where they got their money, and how President Obama got her book. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Oh, don't forget this week, uh, we're also sharing a bonus Patreon podcast tomorrow, Thursday, from only a month after Columbine, with an activist concerned about the exaggerated fear of mass school shootings that the establishment still reports to this day. Finally, 
about the blood on my front stoop that I found yesterday morning as I left my home on the way over here. Yesterday, when I was walking home, I saw a police car parked in front of my house. As I got closer, I realized they had pulled someone over for running the stop sign in front of my house that people always run, and I actually saw a police car T-boned in there while somebody had run the stop sign, so it's always been very exciting intersection. That's when I got back to my front stoop, and I saw the splatter, and I decided it was a good idea, big mistake, to ask the police officer what it was. And what it was not is, well, I'll tell you in a second. So I yelled, excuse me, boss because I call everybody boss for some reason, even though I never spent time in prison. He completely ignored me, walked back to his car loudly, even louder. I yelled, excuse me, officer. He went back into his car and rolled up the window. So I approached his car with my hands in the freaking air. And I was saying, officer, officer, nothing. I, 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 suddenly I realized he was doing some sort of uh, police bookkeeping. So I waited, putting my hands back in my pockets as they were cold. He rolled down his window and said, when approaching an officer, you must have your hands in the air. I explained I did until my hands got cold by holding them up for so long. So I told him that I was, I told him I was completely colorblind and I wondered if he could tell me if what was on our stoop was indeed blood. He agreed to check it out. That's when he informed me that, in fact, the splattered stuff was not red and that it was brown. He suggested maybe it's coffee or, and at this point, I think he was implying the likelihood of it being poop, excrement, human excrement. I said, thanks. And he went, we went our separate ways. And I'm kind of wishing it had been blood. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you today on this week, uh, introduced to you on this week's set of shows and throughout all of 2021. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>